As you know, next Sunday is Palm Sunday and begins the observances of our High Holy Days, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, where we kind of go through the historical events of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. The readings today, before Holy Week starts, kind of give us the 50,000-foot view. From God's point of view, what is going on here? What is he doing? And it presents to us the basic gospel statements and the earliest confessions of Christian faith in the divinity of Jesus. John's gospel brings that out, as well as the first readings from Hebrews. And I've added a third section, which is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, which you will hear next Sunday. And that's why you have a three-by-five table on your outline. So, so there's no test. Just forget about the table for a few minutes. We'll go through it when we get there. And then you can do the rest for homework. First, I want to talk about John's gospel, and in particular, today's gospel. John's gospel is very carefully constructed, perhaps more so than the others. It's John's eyewitness testimony of various events, plus his mature understanding of what Jesus is really about and what these things meant. Most of it takes place in Jerusalem, unlike the other gospels. And today's chapter 8 is right in the middle of his chapter 12, is right in the middle of John's gospel at the end of his public ministry and his signs, and then leading into the account of the Last Supper and his suffering and death. Now, if you've never read a gospel from beginning to end like it was written, like it's actually a whole entire little book, I really would encourage you to do that. Every once in a while, I'll ask somebody, have you ever read a gospel all the way through? And they'll say, no. Well, most of you probably have. But if you haven't, read John's gospel between now and Good Friday when we read The Passion According to John. Even if you speed read it, just so that you get an overview and then you can study other passages as we do at various times, but get the whole view. This chapter of John's Gospel recaptures and sums up a number of themes which John presents repeatedly in his Gospel. The first one is that Jesus is the Son of God to come down from heaven. And this one occurs so often that I'm not going to read you any of the references. It occurs in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 11. It's a real theme with him. The ones I want to look at more in particular from today's gospel, in verse 23, Jesus says, My hour has come. Jesus' hour is a big theme with John. Up till this point in the gospel, we've always heard, my hour has not come, or has not yet come. So when Mary asked, told Jesus about the wine problem at the wedding of Cana, Jesus said, basically, that's no big deal. My hour has not yet come. And when in chapter 7 and 8 of John, people were out to arrest Jesus, to bring him into the high priest, and they came back without him, or he passed through the crowd because it said, his hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour is when he sets aside his divine authority, the power of the Holy Spirit, which is with him throughout his life, and allows himself 
to be handed over to the hands of men. Up until that time, they couldn't touch him. But now he says, my hour has come. And it's the arrival of these Greeks, which would mean Greek-speaking Jews who came for the Passover, who lived outside of Galilee or Judea, and who normally spoke Greek and probably didn't speak Hebrew, or at least not much. And they go to one of Jesus' disciples, and it says, Philip was from Bethsaida. Well, being from Bethsaida, you're on a trade route. He probably knew Greek. So we have these Greek-speaking Jews grab a couple of Jesus' disciples that they can talk to and say, we would like to meet Jesus. <clears throat> and watch Jesus' response. My hour has come. So the arrival of these people from other parts of the Roman Empire is a sign that his hour has come. Earlier in chapter 7, there's this passage where Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot come. And some of the people in the crowd say, where is he going? Is he going out to the Greek-speaking Jews? No, but when they come to him, his hour has come. Another theme which we see in verse 32 is when Jesus, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. This occurred when Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus in chapter 3. The Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the same theme again in chapter 8. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. So being lifted up, now he's saying, the time has come, it's going to happen. He is going to be raised above the earth in death by crucifixion, dying in order to bear fruit. As he elaborates again, when the grain of wheat has to fall into the ground and die before it can bear fruit. In verse 27, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. So deep inside, he is troubled. This is John's parallel to the descriptions of the agony in the garden, which the other gospel writers have. John does not have it in that part of his narrative, but he refers to it here. My soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. Or as he said in the garden, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. No. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. As in the garden again, he says, Father, let your will be done. Father, glorify your name. The Father's name, God's name, will be glorified when Jesus faithfully carries out the mission that he has been given, which is to offer his life for the sins of the world. And then in verse 31, another theme which John has presented before, the judgment of the world. Now is the world going to be judged. In John 3:17, he put it this way, the God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, that the world might be saved. He who believes is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. So 
Jesus doesn't have to say, world, I condemn you. All he has to do is say, I am the light. If you want to walk in the light, come to me. And if you prefer to stay in the darkness, you are condemning yourself. C.S. Lewis put it this way in one of his writings. It's an either or. Either the person comes eventually to say to God, thy will be done, or God has to say to him, okay, thy will be done. So we see many paradoxes here. Jesus frequently says things which stand our whole way of looking at them on their head. Who's being judged? Jesus apparently is about to be judged by the high priest, the Sanhedrin, and he's about to be judged by Pilate and found worthy of death. But he says the world is about to be judged. He is about to be glorified. Really? It sure doesn't look like it. Salvation by crucifixion. Paul said that very clearly. We preach Christ crucified, which if you forget the word, we always hear the word Christ. We've been referring to Jesus Christ forever. If you read it literally, if you've never heard it before, it would be, we preach a crucified Messiah, not a triumphant Messiah, not a conquering Messiah, but a crucified Messiah. A scandal to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Messiah had to die to overcome death, to show us that death has been overcome. God said to one of the prophets, my ways are not your ways. We are the ones who look at things upside down, and he has to set them aright. This gospel in the letter from Hebrews expresses a very core belief of Christianity. It's shared by John, by Hebrews, and as I put in the middle column of my table, and Paul in Philippians. So you can look at the table now. We have some pretty much in order. I had to fudge it a little, make it fit. But Hebrews 5, today's epistle, and on the, on the left. On the right, John's gospel with a couple of verses from chapter 13 put in. And Philippians 2 in the middle, straight down the line. First row, basically, Jesus was fully aware that he was the Son of God. Hebrews says, although he was a son, Philippians says, though he was born in the, was in the form of God, and John at the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 13, knowing that he had come from God and was going to God. Second row, he became flesh. In the days of his flesh, from Philippians, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In John chapter 13, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, a very servantly task. In the third row, it says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. 
And in today's gospel we read, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it does not bear fruit. So what was Jesus doing in our fourth row? He offered up prayers and supplications and was heard because of his reverent submission. Philippians says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. John said, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, Father, glorify your name. And the result is that having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey, according to Hebrews. And in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess. And in John, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So he came from God. He became human. He was obedient to his call. He prayed to God for us. And because of his reverence, obedience was able to be a source of salvation to us. Now, a little bit of an aside. Most of you don't need this, perhaps. But in our culture and in our time, we get this constant, well, I'll call it sniping at the message of the gospel. Not, it's kind of said, well, we don't really know for sure what Jesus said. This idea of a divinity is so foreign to the Hebrew mind that no Hebrew writers would ever say that Jesus was the Son of God, the divine Son of God. This must have been something they picked up over in the next two or three generations as Christianity spread into the pagan world, into the Greek and Roman world, where they use divine titles all the time. Not so. First of all, I accidentally discovered, or at the U City Library a couple of weeks ago, they had a book on display about the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I just happened to see in there, lo and behold, at that time of Jesus and slightly before, there was inklings or expectation of a divine redeemer. And if you look at Daniel, whom Jesus refers to many, many times about the Son of Man, there are passages which strongly suggest that the coming Messiah is divine. But if no Jew could conceivably write this, then where did they get the idea? It must have come from Jesus himself. And these are very, very early writings in the history of the church. They were not written 150, 200 years later. Hebrews is dated around 62 or 3 AD. John wrote his gospel later when he was much older, but still he was an eyewitness to the teachings of Jesus. And Paul's letter to Philippians is written around 61 or 62 AD. So we're talking about one generation removed from Jesus. People who heard him were still alive. 30 to 35 years later, they were making this type of bold confession. And even earlier than that, this section from Philippians, from people who study analyzing these sorts of texts, found several places, including this one, where Paul incorporates into his letter a confession of faith or perhaps a hymn or a liturgical prayer which was already in use by the Christian community. And this is one of them. 
It just reads, it's very easy to memorize, it's very concise, the type of thing you would find recited by a congregation. So this belief that Jesus came from God and became man and suffered obedience for to died for us so that he would be raised up goes back to the very beginnings of Christianity. So, keep coming back to this. Why God's Son? What is God up to? Well, we can look at the first reading from Jeremiah, and we see how the Old Covenant failed. The priests, the prophets, didn't always do their job, or if they did their job, the people didn't listen to them. And God said he's going to make a new covenant. Well, the first one sounds pretty good. I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. God saw the old covenant as a marriage between himself and the people of Israel. But Israel was not faithful. So what can he do that's new, that's better than a marriage? And that gets down to why the Redeemer had to be his son. So he could have raised up someone else, another prophet like Moses, who could have given his life, who could have been raised from the dead. But that still was not good enough because the root of the problem is the sin which resides in all of us as descendants of Adam. And so Jesus came as the son of the father who was not an inheritor of the evil dispositions that have been in the world since Adam. And therefore he could establish a new covenant which would do away with our sin. We needed something more intimate even than a marriage covenant. And God said, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, not in a band that they can wear around their arm, not in a band which they'd wear around their foreheads to remind them, but in their hearts so they would know, I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. No more sermons. No more Bible studies. They will all know me in their hearts. Now before you fire us too quickly, we're not there yet. Yes, we should be started there. There is in my heart something which no one can argue me out of because no one argued me into it. I know. I don't know it all, but I know something. I know that Jesus is my Lord and my God. I said, we're not there yet, so you can continue studying the word with us together. But the one warning, don't follow somebody who says, I know it all. So I'll try not to ever say that. Um, <laughs> but there is a personal relation at the heart of this. And how it comes and when it comes is different for every individual. The Holy Spirit is our guide because of that when we study the Word. And we do it as a body, as the body of Christ. That's attitude should be in us which Jesus expressed in Matthew. I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to babes. 
I keep meaning to put that quote up over my desk, and I haven't done it yet. Every theologian, every bishop should have that quote up over his desk. And we can guard our hearts, as our responsorial psalm said, guard our heart according to your word, treasure your word, teach me, and we will come to know closer than a husband and a wife the presence of the living God in our hearts. Amen. Amen.